This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. It's especially difficult today to talk about Indigenous people and Canada's colonial legacy. The discovery of unmarked graves in Kamloops, BC, and more recently in Saskatchewan on the sites of former residential schools brings into sharp relief the violence of the colonial state and the genocide of Indigenous people. And mere weeks ago, the federal government released its action plan on missing and murdered Indigenous women. And amidst all that, the Canadian government also finally adopted Bill C-15, which, when implemented, would align Canadian laws with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Today, we discuss an international framework for Indigenous rights. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juwita Gupta. It's a difficult day, indeed a difficult week for news when it comes to the stories coming out of Saskatchewan. And for those of you who belong to the Indigenous community, hearing about this has no doubt been very hard. So I hope that you are reaching out to friends, to family, to community, and trying to find a circle of support to get people to talk to, to lean on at this difficult time. But I think it also is a moment of reckoning for Canadians to grapple with our history as a country, especially so close to Canada Day, which is normally celebrated with pomp and circumstance. And I think there have been many conversations had about maybe not having the festivities this year and putting that money towards reconciliation efforts. So much to talk about today, and we have so little time. My guest today is Brenda Gunn. Brenda is a proud Métis woman. She is at the Faculty of Law at the University of Manitoba. Brenda is an expert in international law and human rights frameworks as they pertain to Indigenous people. And we are very happy to have her on the program today. Brenda, thank you very much for talking to us today. I know it's a difficult day to have a conversation, but thanks a lot for making a bit of time for us. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me and for opening up a conversation on some of the big challenges we have here in Canada. I do want to get a sense from you as to how you're feeling. There's been a lot of news recently, some good and some downright terrible. Uh, when we think about the unmarked graves and the discovery of the, the graves in Kamloops, BC, and now more recently in Saskatchewan. And I think it's fair to say that's an ongoing story, and we'll probably see more of that in the weeks and months to come. And yet, on the other hand, you've got the action plan on missing and murdered Indigenous women that came out in early June, and the, uh, and the adoption of Bill C-15. A lot of things to process at the same time. So how are you feeling? You know, I think it's just overwhelming, Right. Mm -hmm. The finding of the graves and finding of the children is heartbreaking, but it's also reaffirming as the survivors have known for years of the location of graves. And so having confirmation of 
that information and the opportunity to perhaps bring those children home, I think, is really important. But it's devastating, you know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anyone that isn't um, grieving deeply at at this time. And it comes at a time when you're right. There are things maybe that we want to be celebrating. Um, passing Bill C-15 after, on its third attempt after many years. It's something that should have been a moment to celebrate and think about bright futures. And this shadow keeps coming, coming back to remind us of the importance of the work that lays ahead. We'll be talking about the work that still needs to happen, and we'll even come back and talk more about Bill C-15. But let's take a step back. What can you tell us about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People? You know, I think one of the important things to remember, particularly in the current Canadian context, that the UN Declaration is about recognizing fundamental human rights, human rights that all peoples should enjoy. But what is becoming increasingly clear and I think incontrovertible is the the realization that Indigenous peoples in Canada and around the world have suffered enormous injustices and violations of their human rights. And so... The UN Declaration is really important to help all of us understand what are the fundamental human rights of Indigenous peoples and and how does that work within society. You know, all people have a right to life, but not everyone has experienced the various forms of genocide that we've seen against Indigenous peoples in Canada from what was identified in the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls to the identification of the mass graves. It's becoming clearer and clearer that the mass atrocities in Canada are are serious and, and need to be addressed. And so the UN Declaration is really useful in the way that it helps us understand the particular violations of rights that Indigenous peoples have experienced but also importantly, how we need to move forward in Canada. You know, the preamble talks about, in fact, that it is through recognizing the rights of Indigenous people that we actually enhance harmonious and cooperative relations. And so in Canada, if we really want to focus on reconciliation, we have to do so on the basis of recognizing and protecting Indigenous people's fundamental and inherent human rights. And doing so helps us shift the relationship to one based on democracy and respect for human rights, good faith, justice, those values that Canadians often espouse. I'm reluctant to ask you this, but I'll ask you anyways. Uh, the UNDRIP is a, a, is a big document. There's a lot of complexity in it in some respects, um, and I'm sure all of it it goes without saying, is very important and should be taken as a whole. But what are some of the articles you think are particularly relevant for us to be thinking about right now? It is a good question, and and I am hesitant to answer it. I think it's really important that we look at it as a whole um, because part of the criticisms that have come is by reading 
certain articles or parts of articles out of context and taking them to a sort of extreme, illogical place that, you know, doesn't fit within the broader context and goals. But I think for me, Articles 1 and 2 are really important. They're about equality and non-discrimination. And I think if we remember that as our starting point as to what we're trying to achieve here, ensure that Indigenous peoples have the same equal opportunities in Canada, have access to the same uh, human rights that others in, can, in Canada enjoy. And, real, and recognizing that Indigenous peoples should not be discriminated against for being Indigenous. Mm-hmm. And that areas in Canadian law that continue to be based in racial discrimination no longer have a place in our democracy if we want to continue to hold ourselves out as a human rights upholding state. Tell us a bit about Bill C-15. It just received royal assent. So what does Bill C-15 do? And now that it's received royal assent, what's going to happen next? Um, I'm not sure I can predict the future on what's (laughs) going to happen next, but I can say perhaps what is in the bill. You know, it's really a, a simple idea that is in the bill, and it starts by clarifying that the UN Declaration applies in Canada. And it's really important because there's a lot of real technical rules that exist in international law about how and why and when and where international law applies. And I can say that as a law professor and as someone who's worked on international human rights, I continue to be surprised at the lack of understanding of how international law applies, including by some of uh, our most respected jurists in Canada, senior judges that are very well respected, making errors of international human rights law in their decisions, or judges simply brushing it aside and saying it's not relevant. So we clarified that the UN Declaration really does um, apply in Canada. We also now are to be taking action to review the laws and policies in Canada to see where there's consistencies or inconsistencies, right? It's about raising up the standards that we have in Canada And so this is sort of standard practice when Canada, you know, signs onto human rights treaties and all the declaration, of course, it's not a treaty. We're generally trying to review and see where the laws are compliant or where we might need additional work. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, the bill also requires to develop a plan to implement the UN declaration, right? So instead of just relying on litigation for Indigenous peoples to try to receive recognition of their rights, the idea is that we should be working with Indigenous peoples and Canadian governments to come up with a plan to how are we going to realize the standards in Canada and how are things going to maybe look different coast to coast to coast, recognizing the diversity of Indigenous peoples in Canada and making sure that the implementation reflects those diversities. And then the bill requires Canada to report to Parliament, um, to, you know, check in to say what's happening. And then finally, and importantly, the Act clarifies that um, 
Nothing in implementing the UN Declaration can undermine or abrogate or derogate from any existing rights that Indigenous peoples have, including those found and recognized under Section 35 of the Constitution, the Aboriginal and Treaty Rights that are affirmed there. And so it really is, I think, um, you know, a meaningful yet modest attempt to start bringing life to the UN Declaration in Canada in a coordinated, in a planned fashion. I'm Chuita Gupta, and my guest today is University of Manitoba Professor Brenda Gunn, and we're talking about Bill C-15, which received royal assent a few days ago, and also having a conversation about what needs to happen next to ensure that Canadian laws comply with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. A lot of people have been concerned about things uh, being left undone because, as you know, uh, Parliament rose for the summer just recently uh, as well. Uh, There's a lot of talk about an election possibly taking place in the fall. When you hear things like that, do you feel a a bit nervous about whether they would actually implement uh, Bill C-15 in a satisfactory fashion, or is it going to be one of those things that gets lost in the shuffle? I think you're right to, you know, raise caution that we have to make sure that the government doesn't sort of give themselves a pat on the back. Yep, we passed the bill. Now it's time to move on. Um. I think it's going to fall to Indigenous peoples and our allies to keep the pressure on to make sure that if an election is in fact called, that this implementation and development of a national action plan is on the radar, is top priority for all parties and to make this an election issue. But I do think also if Canada is a country that respects the rule of law, the legislation does require that reporting and requires Canada to develop a national action plan. And I think, again, Canada needs to follow its own laws, like Bill C-15 and the Act to Implement the UN Declaration. It's now part of Canadian law, and it sets out that the government is to do these things. And so, you know, unless the next government wants to go through the exercise of repealing Bill C-15, which um, I think would be quite the statement to make, they really are required to take these steps. And so um, I think we just have to keep the pressure on and and not let up. I mean, take our moment to celebrate, but, um, you know, keep the pressure going as we move forward. Do you think that the adoption of Bill C-15 might help in any way to um, to to build on the findings and the action plan of, of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry. Do those two things adapt together in, in your in your mind? Yeah, I I would hope so. I think the idea is, of course, and is that the National Action Plan should be including and should be about realizing the fundamental human rights of Indigenous women and girls. And um, and so I don't 
know how we could do the things separately. They're going to be feeding into each other. And one would hope that implementing the UN Declaration, including the you know the provisions that speak directly to violence, but also addressing the other areas, the economic, social rights, um, and thinking about the right to housing and all the issues that have increased the insecurity for Indigenous women, those may be addressed through the process of creating an action plan under Bill C-15 and implementing the UN Declaration. You know, I was thinking today about Joyce Eshaquan, a woman who does what many of us do, which is go to the hospital to get medical treatment. And her mistreatment uh, made headlines across the country. It made me really feel like the neglect of Indigenous women in particular uh, is so deeply harmful. Uh, do you feel a, likewise a sort of a sense of urgency to act on the missing and murdered Indigenous women, but in general to engender the conversation about international human rights uh, and Indigenous people, to really sort of look at it through the lens of gender? In some of my work, I really have focused on the need to take a gendered approach to implementing the UN Declaration. One of the early criticisms that came out against the UN Declaration was the lack of provisions that speak to Indigenous people, or Indigenous women, sorry, in a positive light, and that the provisions perhaps that do speak to women take too much of a deficit approach. And I think the best response I have to that is there is the article that reminds us that all rights apply equally to men and women. And so it becomes part of our work to ensure that every article that is implemented were and the plan to implement those are ensuring that indigenous women and girls are benefiting from the that work and that we're going to ensure that um, their rights are implemented and realized as well and it's important to begin to have real conversations about the way in which colonization in Canada was a gendered process in many ways. And the easiest one to point to, of course, is the Indian Act, where Mm -hmm. Indian women lost status for various reasons, while, you know, Indian men could pass their status on to non-Indian women when they got married. And so all of the ways in which colonization has targeted Indigenous women or had differential impacts, we need to start addressing those in our process to implement the UN Declaration. Absolutely. You know, uh, off and on on the program, I've had representatives from BCANS, which is the Indigenous Disability Organization, and they are so dynamic. They, of course, put on Indigenous Disability Awareness Month every November. They're actually expanding to be a national organization. Where does the nexus between disability issues and Indigenous issues exist uh, based on your work and sort of based on your analysis? How do we bring those two things together? There are many intersections that exist, right? And I think, again, this is the importance of a national action plan. We have to recognize the ways in which Indigenous peoples experience violations of their human rights in different ways, right? There's not one global way that Indigenous peoples experience violations or aspirations to what self-determination would look like. 
And disability mm-hmm. and ability is absolutely one of them. And there are some studies that have come out of the United Nations that have looked at issues of uh, disability. But we can definitely see the inequalities in Canada ranging from how health care is provided and how services are funded, right? We can think about Jordan's principle and the need to ensure that First Nations kids have access to the resources they need to have healthy lives and to have health outcomes that are equal to other kids and not formal equality, of course, but stand of equality. Mm-hmm. And we see those interactions, I think, in, in many ways as well, sexuality. And, you know, we talk about uh, the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, but the inquiry was very clear that they were also looking at the impacts to the extent they were able of the Two-Spirit and LGBTQ communities as well. And that, you know, there's many different ways that our communities and nations experience violations. And so we want to work to ensure that implementing the UN Declaration is nuanced and addresses those various complexities. In the few minutes that we have left, um, I'm going to invite you to weigh in on a debate that's been simmering, which is, do we cancel Canada Day? What's your take on it? You know, I I think the question I have is, what are we celebrating? And if we're celebrating, what are we erasing when when we do so? And I'm not sure that I want to weigh in more than that other than to Mm -hmm. say I I personally am not in a place that I feel like we have a lot to celebrate in Canada we have a lot of hard work to do ahead of us and you know we've talked about some of the gains we've made this year but we are having a lot of reminders right now of the damage that has been done and I think if we want to celebrate Canada, we must really think about what are we celebrating and make sure that we're not erasing those hard um, those hard truths that keep resurfacing, right? So um, there has to be a recognition, and, and Canada really needs to accept in, in a real and a deep way just how fractured we are. And that legacy, right, that this isn't just the history, there's policies that continue to exist that perpetuate the um, colonial mindset and the undermine, or the attempts to undermine our Indigenous nations here. And so I hope we can spend the time doing the hard work and not just um, taking a day to celebrate and forget about those histories and if there's ways that people can celebrate Canada while recognizing those hardships maybe it can be done but I think it we really need to be in a period of uh, national mourning I'm not sure Um, I'm finding it hard to think of things that we celebrate right now 
Brenda Gunn, thank you very much for talking to us today on the program. Uh, we've really appreciated getting to speak to you and getting a sense of how you're feeling and what your thoughts are. Well, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. That was Brenda Gunn of the University of Manitoba. She was in Winnipeg today. If you missed any of my conversation with Brenda, if you want to go back and have a listen, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Brenda Gunn for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is the technical producer for the program. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you stay safe and uh, be well. And we'll talk to you again next weekend. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.